The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. I'm your host, Jay. And I am Mike. And this week, we're letting Mike watch something wonderful, something precious from the past, something out of Africa. (laughs) We'll also be tackling our bottom five romances and maybe pitching a couple stat picks your way. Well, I'm going to be happy to get into all of that in just a second. Jay, why don't we go ahead and roll the trailer? Through the eyes of a woman who wouldn't be owned. Why is your freedom more important than mine? It isn't. And I've never interfered with your freedom. From the spirit of a man who couldn't be tamed. When did you learn to fly? Yesterday. Out of a land of beauty, mystery, and majesty. Out of Africa. Mike, with this pick of Out of Africa, my hope was that by making you spend most of your adult life watching a sun-drenched period drama, (laughs) I will have freed you from whatever it is that you hated most in this world. Things like Eagles fans, or Yal-Qaeda, or the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm -hmm. Because now you can just focus all your rage, discontent, and disapproval on me. I don't think that I'm quite ready to feed you to the lions after this movie. Almost because I had so much time while watching this movie to get used to the fact that I was watching the movie. I feel like I went through all the stages of grief by the end of the film. Like, I came out of it in a place of acceptance. There were parts of this movie where I was cussing you out. But I think I've come to a place at the end where I'm ready to have a grown-up conversation about it. That's a sh- that's a real shame, honestly, I think. There are going to be days that I, I swear about the films that you make me watch. I don't think this is going to be one of them. But I am ready to have a conversation because I, I know why you gave me this movie. Oh. I think that a lot of it was motivated by that insane runtime. You wanted to put me through an absolute marathon, heartbreak hill kind of situation of a movie. But... All of those elements are just not the things I gravitate to. You you know that I'm not a Jane Eyre kind of guy, right? That wasn't going to be my thing. When I think about you, I don't think of British colonialism, typically. Mm -hmm. It's just not something I typically think of, but... It's a huge relief (laughs) to find out that I am not a one-to-one for British colonialism in your brain. Jay, this movie is so long. The opening credits are like 25 minutes of just watching a choo-choo train chugging across Africa. It's a movie that is not in a hurry to do anything, say anything, or get anywhere. But man, I have to tell you, and this is maybe where you forgot the guy I am, because as much Mm -hmm. as you are the man who is all about story, I love the visuals, I love the performances, that choo-choo is really something, because the star of this movie is not Meryl Streep or Robert Redford. I'd argue it's the director of cinematography, David Watkin. The cinematography in Out of Africa is amazing. Mm -hmm. He was the DP for this. He also earned an Oscar for his troubles in this film and did other things like Chariots of Fire, Jane Eyre. 
Tea with Mussolini, all films that I can see why you'd be like, this is not for Mike. I also shit you not, when I checked out this guy's filmography, he's got like at least a dozen short films about trains. <laughs> so, so it really explains the opening train sequence. Can you imagine the conversation between Sidney Pollack, the director, and David Watkins, cinematographer, and every time it'll be about, I think we got enough of the train. No! <laughs> More train! <laughs> yeah, the train that goes from, you know, goes from left to right because we're passing time. Yeah, all of that sort of stuff. The film offers up incredible landscapes, wildlife shots that I think rival anything in a David Attenborough nature documentary. So that's the good stuff. And at mm. an absurd runtime of two hours... And 41 minutes, you have lots of time to take it in. This movie starts itself slowly. Like, who could give a shit slow? Meryl Streep plays uh, a Danish woman named Karen Blixton, a real-life woman whose book this film is based on. And she marries a friend of hers for both convenience and title as Baroness. They move to Africa where she's going to run a coffee plantation that doesn't have much hope for success. Her husband is this charming philanderer who pretty much immediately takes off and starts philandering and leaving her with the farm. Klaus Maria Brandauer. I'm going to need you to throw that out a lot because it's fun to say. He's actually maybe the best part of the film. From an oh, acting he, perspective. He's phenomenal. He speaks like five languages and he's acted speaking each one of those languages. So he's acted in movies speaking each one of the languages that he speaks. Unbelievable actor. I was wondering if you were going to spend a lot of the running time counting the moles on his face, though. <laughs> it was kind of like Robin Hood Men in Tights where I was wondering if it was moving around his face. It, it wasn't, but I checked. <laughs> I had time to check. Uh, he's actually really great here because he's one of the most interesting characters, even though he doesn't get a ton of screen time. He plays this friend of Karen Blixton. They get married. They, they have this very sweet, charming relationship, but they do get married and that carries some weight. And so they have this very open understanding of what the situation is. The movie doesn't spend a lot of time digging in on that. It just kind of sets it up and, and moves us along. He's gone almost as soon as he's there and comes back in a few other times. I would have actually liked to see a lot more of that relationship. I definitely think it was more interesting than the relationship that sprouts up with Robert Redford. I will certainly get into that. I don't think Robert Redford was that great in the film. I think that most people that see the movie would agree with you on that. He was sort of the marquee draw. Absolutely. The consensus opinion, as far as I know, is that he was pretty underwhelming. I thought so too. Nothing Redford did was particularly special to me. He was supposed to be this dashing, charming, big game hunter. And I didn't see any of that in the, in the portrayal. He really was very flat to me. I didn't buy the chemistry between him and Meryl Streep. I didn't buy him as this sort of brave African adventurer. I, am, I would believe The Rock in a role like this more than Robert Redford, you know? I would say that Redford at his best is frequently a more unassuming sort of masculine character. And I think what this called for was someone with a much larger presence, almost someone like, dare I say, like a Brando or something like that. Harrison Ford. I wanted an Indiana no Jones character with him for this. Really? I think a, like a dashing Han Solo rogue roguish really? kind of guy that would have worked for me wow the movie just starts so 
slowly introducing us to these characters, what they're up to. We get the great syphilis caper that takes place about 40 minutes into the movie where Karen's philandering husband gives her the sif before she finally tells him to just fuck off for good. And so it seriously takes an hour and a half into this two hour and 41 minute movie before the actual romancing begins between Streep and Redford. Up until now, they've been kind of dancing around each other in these polite social circles. Honestly, it's an unreal what the fuck snooze out of Africa is until this point. Yeah. However, I actually really enjoyed the movie I started watching at the fucking one hour and 40 minute mark. The last... The last hour of the movie was a real banger, as the kids like to say. I would actually, if you would allow me to, to indulge here, I'd like to give you a synopsis of the last hour and 40 minutes of this movie, right? <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Meryl Streep and Robert Redford fight lions and then fuck in a tent. Then they eat a fancy-ass dinner and fuck in a mansion. After that, they go for this totally awesome biplane ride over Africa in what is easily some of the most gorgeous landscape footage I've ever seen. I went ahead and priced it out modern day, that same biplane ride. It's only going to cost you and I about 5,000 bucks to take that same plane ride. Maybe we should start a Patreon. (laughs) They get into some kinky fucking, you know, back at the mansion again. So that's double fuck there. Can we, can we, can we go back to the kinky fucking? He tells her like, hold still. It's not kinky, but it's weird. It's, there's a kink. Like shades. You mean like shades of gray kinky. There's no whips and chains, but he's, He's giving her an awful lot of direction to, like, lie still and don't move. It's very strange. They never really address what the hell that's about. Even I was sort of not sure what I had seen. But after that, they have a delightful brunch. They break up. There's a giant-ass fire. They get back together. They have an absolutely killer, first-rate, top-shelf yard sale. And then Robert Redford dies in a fiery plane crash off screen with 20 minutes left in the movie. That's the last hour and 40 minutes of the movie. And I was like, shit, I would have watched that. I would have watched a tight, a tight 120 of this version of Out of Africa. Honestly, for the audience, if you want to watch Out of Africa, skip about an hour and 40 minutes in and hit play from there. It's a much better movie. Out of Africa, the Merrigan cut. The Merrigan cut. That's Release right. the Merrigan cut. I think so. I think... I think that's pretty stellar. What, what was the, there, there was a subplot involving the land and, and people that were squatting on her land or indigenous people that yes. were living on the land and she becomes protective of them. So what's the white savior score on this picture? Is it dances with wolves level or is it like blindside or maybe somewhere in between? There is definitely a conversation to be had here about race. Uh, oh, <laughs> you have to talk about it. We get an extremely idyllic version of colonial Africa back in 1913. The film portrays Baroness Karen Blixton very generously as some kind of great white hope who comes mm-hmm. to love the African people that work on her plantation. And I'm willing to bet that's probably a direct pull from Karen Blixton's book, where I'm sure she portrays herself as very beloved of these people that work on her land in this this coffee plantation there is really no distinction as to whether or not these folks are working the land they're not slaves they are being compensated but i don't think that matters the movie doesn't spend time with that 
There's a lot to unpack in all that. What I do know is that the role and impact that colonialism had on the continent of Africa is a big, important topic. And it's certainly a relevant conversation here in 2022. I understand why you'd ask the question, but my thing, Jay, is that I think it was also a relevant conversation back in 85 when the movie was made. Apartheid was still alive and well in South Africa at the time. And that was finally a global conversation. Apartheid in South Africa was coming under some pretty serious scrutiny. It would last about another decade after Out of Africa came out. But I find it really surprising that Hollywood, notoriously liberal Hollywood, chose to award this particular film at that particular time with a Best Picture Oscar, given its depiction of race relations in Africa. It really did kind of blow my mind. Yeah, it's almost like they did that same exact thing somewhere around 15-ish or so years later with a movie called Crash. Indeed. How strange. So ultra-liberal Hollywood, isn't it? (laughs) So strange. Now look, I'm not one for holding the art of the past against the morals of today, judging it based on those standards. You get into some tricky territory there, but this movie is pretty gross by today's standards, and I think it should have been gross by 1985 standards as well. I don't think that's some modern reevaluation. It was a problem then too. Out of Africa certainly deserves its awards for the craft of filmmaking. Sidney Pollack won for Best Direction, although I think Akira Kurosawa's Ron would have made a pretty respectable choice that year too. Mm -hmm. I can't argue with Best Art Direction and certainly not Best Cinematography, For me, those are the things that make this film worth even watching at an astonishing 37 years runtime or or whatever the (laughs) hell this thing is. Sidney Pollack and his team crafted a great film, but they told a shit story about some pretty shit people. Now, Sidney Pollack, you know, he directed some good stuff, um, but he also directed some really bad stuff. And I was thinking about it, and the only movie that I could think of that might have as bad a romance in it, possible contender for an even worse romance in a movie called uh, Random Hearts. Oh, I've <laughs> never seen it. Do you remember this it. from 1999? I've never yeah, seen they, it. I've seen it. It's abysmal and it suffers from exactly the same level of incompatibility with your leads that this movie did. It seems to be a trend for poor Sidney Pollack, poor Sidney Pollack, who of course won an Oscar for this one. So. Yeah, he's doing okay, huh? Yeah. We don't have to I pour one a, out for Sidney Pollack, I don't think. No, he, he, and he was also a really good actor, too. I'm not sure if you knew that. but Yes. Did he do Tootsie or did he just he star did. in Tootsie? He directed and he starred in it. Yeah. He had a really good run as a director from 75 through the mid-80s because he did Three Days of a Condor yeah. with Robert Redford in 75. He did Tootsie just before doing Out of Africa. And then wow. he did The Firm in 1993 And it kind of went downhill from there. We're talking Sabrina and Random Hearts. And finally, in 2005, he did The Interpreter with with Nicole Kidman, which is a almost impressively forgettable film. So absolutely out of Africa, the man deserved his Oscar for the film that he made, even if I don't have a whole lot of respect for the performances or the story. The craft of filmmaking is on full display there. Mike, I think you've finally stumbled onto why I actually gave you this movie because you made a bunch of assumptions about why I gave it to you and partly they were true. I did want something with a really long running time. I did think that this was the complete antithesis of something that you would typically choose to watch. 
the real reason that I gave you this to watch was because I felt you would walk away from it the same way that I walked away from Cats, where I could really appreciate the craftsmanship in the filmmaking and the talent and the blood, sweat, and tears that go into crafting something. But in their case, it blew up completely in their face. They ended up with a complete loss, both at the box office and critically and everything else. Here, a very similar thing has happened, but instead of it backfiring, Oscars galore, success galore. Very interesting how it, how the fortunes had changed there. Absolutely. And the movie wants to have its cake and eat it too, because it wants us to kind of pose this idea that Karen Blixton was this woman in the, the boys club of Africa, and that there's something to be said there about the unique challenges facing a woman in Africa. But it hinted at it superficially. The movie's not really interested in telling that story. And really, I don't want to hear it anyway, because listening about how hard it was for a wealthy baroness, literally a Karen, to run her African plantation isn't something that I'm up for. I don't think that audiences in 1985 should be up for it. It wants us to feel for this independent woman trying to be self-sufficient against the backdrop of wild colonial Africa, but I need my feminism to be intersectional and Out of Africa is silent on those points. I really have to say I'm coming away from this experience of wasting, I think, months of my life watching Out of Africa really pleasantly surprised with the experience and that I can have an interesting conversation about a film that I didn't much enjoy unless we get to the Merrigan cut. And I'm telling you guys, it's a banger that that last hour and 40 with the lions and the fucking and all that. That's a movie to check out for sure. <laughs> so thank you, Jason, for giving me out of Africa. And I don't know that I'm going to be going down this particular road again anytime soon. I do have a real urge to take a train ride though. <laughs> So, Mike, it is now time for us to talk about our bottom five this week. And we decided that the bottom five related to Out of Africa, a good choice would be bottom five romances. I'm curious about what your take was for this. Um, I'm sure we could go a few different ways. Please dive right on in with your number five. Well, it turns out that when I think of bottom five romances... I think of relationships that are either objectionable or dangerous. So romances that are toxic, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Some are just sad and failing, like in Kramer versus Kramer. But if I'm going for a bottom five, I need for things to get weird. So mm. that was a logic I incorporated into my list. I wanted to make sure that when I talked about romances, I do think there's an element of it having to be a consenting romance. Of course, I thought immediately about Lolita, but I have a really hard time characterizing Oof. that as romance, even yeah. though it's definitely an upsetting and, and really twisted relationship. So I didn't go down that avenue. Um, with that in mind, I think I'd like to start with my most offbeat pick because <laughs> at number five, this romance is pure conjecture. There's nothing in the film that explicitly says there's a romance involved, but... Don't you dare sit there and try and tell me that Tom Hanks was not fucking that volleyball. 
Oh, no. I didn't just fall off the turnip truck, sir. Oh, I know man. a volleyball fucker when I see one. I am oh. not 100% sure I understand or can I articulate the mechanics of volleyball coitus, but I am absolutely certain that Wilson was putting out on that island. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and look, look, I get it. I get it. Tom Hanks is a handsome and charming dude. I'm not sure I could resist his advances, especially in that gorgeous tropical environment, but I can't say that I blame Wilson exactly for being such an easy island conquest. And I'm not one to kink shame, let's get real here. Romance between a man and his outdoor athletic equipment is is between them, but also a little messed up. So the torrid affair that I presume between Tom Hanks and that volleyball lands at number five on my list. Interestingly, I took a total different approach. You don't say. <laughs> to volleyball fuckery? No way. <laughs> I can't believe but we I were have, identical on that. I have the same director and the same actor in my number five. And that my, my approach, first of all, my approach was to zero in on romances between couples that were either so poorly acted or lacked chemistry to the degree that they pulled me out of the movie. Oh, I love it. I love it. So Great I had angle. a completely different take than you did on this. It was really, it again, it comes down more to like making movies and sure. the craftsmanship of the movie. My choice was Forrest Gump and the relationship was between Forrest and Jenny. Mm. Robert Zemeckis being the director, who's one of my favorite directors, but the part of the movie that I really do struggle with is the Forrest and Jenny romance. Because on one hand, they paint Jenny uh, a person who very early on takes agency over her own life and decides she's going to do what she wants to do. Even if it's not the best decisions or whatever else, she's at least living her own damn life. The movie punishes her like crazy for it. Repeatedly. It, repeatedly. Forrest, of course, pure of heart, very natured, very sweet. You don't want to see him get hurt either, but he's pining away the entire movie in an unrequited way for the affections of Jenny. And I think that that really sets up an ugly dynamic because you just sort of feel icky about all of it when they do finally get together. I mean, you're feeling a little bit good for Forrest, right? Because you're like, oh, he sure. finally gets the girl that he always loved and it's very sweet. But Jenny, you don't feel particularly good for because at that point, she's a recovering drug addict that has to be taken care of. They have their one night together. Then she runs off. And then she comes back. She has AIDS and a child. Like, it is just... It right. is, And, good of course, Lord. now, the whole romance angle, I feel, could have been helped so much if they were always just friends. And there was a sense of platonic love that happened between them. And it wasn't so hung up on this melodrama involving Jenny. So anyway, that was what I uh, chose as my number five. What's your number four, Mike? Like any right-minded person, I'm disturbed by romances that involve people too young to really make good informed choices about their romantic lives. Films give us a lot of examples to choose from, but for my number four, I'm going with a really bad romance in a really great film, and that's Kit and Holly in Terrence Malick's Badlands. Oh, when a 20-year-old convinces a 15-year-old to kill her father and then go on a murder spree across South Dakota's Badlands, I'm here to tell you that that's one fucked romance. 
the movie's fantastic. It's part of the new Hollywood era of the mid 60s through 70s. Another really great flick from that time period that I think also fits here is Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty and a stunning Faye Dunaway. But officially for this list, I went with Kit and Holly, played really wonderfully by Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. The romance at work here is violent and destructive and nihilistic. It's a romance that leads to a bunch of people getting killed and that's how it lands on my list. I think that having anything from that era of filmmaking is pretty wonderful on a list like this. I think that they were taking such chances in that period of cinema. It's my favorite period of cinema. I think it has some of the best parts of a lot of those different movies. <laughs> it has some of the amazing cinematography from something like Easy Rider. Sure. From that same period, but it's yep. got those great performances like Bonnie and Clyde. It's got a little bit of that offbeat comedy, like from The Graduate. I really think for me, Badlands is almost sort of the perfect new Hollywood film. Kit made me get my books from school so I wouldn't fall behind. We'd be starting a new life, he said, and we'd have to change our names. His would be James, mine would be Priscilla. We'd hide out like spies somewhere in the north where people didn't ask a lot of questions. I could have snuck out the back or hidden the boiler room, I suppose. But I sensed that my destiny now lay with Kit, for better or for worse. And that it was better to spend a week with one who loved me for what I was than years of loneliness. At my number four, I've gone in a completely different direction. This would come from a much more slick period of Hollywood productions. And to that I mean everything was very shiny. There was a very slick veneer. Everything is very, very pretty. And in fact, the female actress in it was probably one of the most glamorous women to have ever taken the screen. I'm talking about 1993's Sliver, directed by Philip Noyce. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. It stars Sharon Stone as Carly and Billy Baldwin oh boy. <laughs> as a guy named Zeke. Woof. <laughs> It takes place in a Manhattan high-rise that Sharon Stone's character has just moved into. Turns out that Zeke is the owner of the place and that he has the whole place rigged with video cameras. Gross. The previous tenant had perhaps committed suicide, was perhaps victim of some sort of strange accident, but was also blonde and looked a lot like Sharon Stone. <laughs> Oh boy. I see where uh, this is going. The rest of this thing is pretty much known for shagging to Enigma. <laughs> <laughs> Enigma was straight up fucking music is what it was. And it was indeed. There is no shortage of it in this movie. But the real problem is Sharon Stone can really act. She's a very, very good actress. In this, she's bringing everything she knows how to do, and she's acting opposite Billy Baldwin, oh. who constantly looks like a kid who is opening up a present on Christmas morning that he knows exactly what's inside the box. <laughs> he peeked at all his presents already? He just always looks frazzled, and he has no idea what he's doing in this movie. It's very difficult to watch these two actors try to generate any level of steam and at this point that's what the movies were calling for they were calling for sex scenes i think the real problem is is that people had to watch somebody having sex with billy baldwin <laughs> indeed good lord sliver is my number four i tried really hard to stay away from this period because i know this is where you live and breathe <laughs> My number three is another one of those cheap picks where I find a way to list a bunch of movies, but here... Oh, come on. 
I'm going with a trend rather than a specific film. My number three is the romance where some schlubby Hollywood actor casts a bombshell as his wife in the movie he's making. Fucking Adam Sandler, I am looking at you. Mm. Here's the list. He does this with Julie Bowen twice. Drew Barrymore twice. Joey Lauren Adams, Patricia Arquette, Winona Ryder, Kate Beckinsale, Jessica Biel. Speaking of which, you can fuck right off with I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry. Mm. That's the like other romance that I'm putting on this list because that movie is just 90 minutes of gay jokes followed up with five minutes of like, gee, I guess love is love. It's bullshit. <laughs> and finally for Sandler, Selma fucking Hayek in those grown-ups movies. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Kevin James does this. That disgusting, and I will use the word alleged here for strictly legal reasons, that alleged pedophile Woody Allen practically invented this. It insults my intelligence, and it sends the message that actresses are showpieces for their male co-stars. It's a trope I can't stand, and I can't stand it enough that it made my list at number three. Yes, Mike, at my number three, I sort of repeated a little bit of the theme of number four and just went ahead with Body of Evidence. Rebecca okay, and yep. Frank from Body of Evidence, also from 1993, nominated for six Razzies, but this one actually won one where Madonna actually beat out Sharon Stone for Worst Actress. But a on the plus side, Madonna was also nominated for an MTV Video Movie Award for Most Desirable Female. So You take the good, you take the bad. This flick was uh, directed by Uli Udell. Here, the big problem with Body of Evidence is Madonna. I mean, as much as I love her, and I do, I am, do. A, I am a, do. Un, a pretty unrepentant Madonna fan. It, it, essentially, it's a reheated basic instinct. With, mm -hmm. um, you know, Madonna playing the femme fatale role instead of Michael Douglas and the detective character. In this one, you've got Willem Dafoe <laughs> as a lawyer, <laughs> as oh, a defense no. lawyer. Madonna's been accused of murdering someone. They have her on tape as pretty much just fucking him to death. <laughs> he got madonna Yeah, he got madonna <laughs> And Which, honestly, if there's a way to go, right? I mean, right? I mean, I mean okay. <laughs> And then, of course, you know, Defoe, as her defense attorney, just ends up in bed with her, even though he's married to Julie Ann Moore. Now, can I just step back here? All right. I may love Madonna, but if Julie Ann Moore is at home waiting, Madonna ain't ever getting a call. Yeah, you're walking the line for sure. <laughs> I mean, who does that, right? Defoe has no idea where he is in this movie. I, I feel like he's on a different planet entirely as far as acting goes, as far as... Have you ever seen a really, really, really low-budget, cheap movie that has nudity in it, but the lead actresses didn't want to do the nudity, so it's obvious as hell that there's body doubles in it, and it just, it's its laughable? It's as though Willem Dafoe wanted a body double acting opposite Madonna. <laughs> he oh, just, wow. He just, he seems so checked out. And I, I did some research on it. He actually really enjoyed working with her. He said they had a great working relationship. Zero chemistry. It's another movie where it's supposed to be very erotic, very sultry and seductive and all of this. And you have Defoe and Madonna. When I was a kid, I, I liked to steal strawberries. I'd sneak into the neighbor's yard at the end of the street. And I remember they had a big fence. 
and I'd always scrape my knees climbing over it. And then on the other side, they had these wild rose bushes. And the thorns would dig into my legs and cut my thighs when I slid down. But the strawberries always tasted so sweet. Because of how much it hurt to get them. Yeah. There is no spark, no, it's like two pieces of wet wood that you're just rubbing together trying to create a fire. <laughs> Defoe looks to me like if a, a briefcase came to life. <laughs> like he's got that like leathery, weathered. He's a walking, uh, ne- he's a walking Necronomicon from, from Evil Dead. Absolutely, yep, <laughs> yep. This is a dreadful movie and a perfect example of a terribly rendered romance. It sounds like an excellent pick to me. Again, you're, you're doing me the favor of never watching a movie I haven't seen. So that's fantastic. Jason, for my number two, it's important for our audience to know, you know this, I'm a husband. I understand what it means to want to care for my wife. I understand that she looks to me to help her feel safe, to provide her with support when she needs it and asks for it, to care for her when she's ill. When my wife was pregnant with our children, all of this was magnified times a billion. So I truly understand the romance that goes into having a life partner and starting a family. That's why the romance we get between Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes in Rosemary's Baby is especially super duper all time fucked. I am so glad you are calling this movie out for this because I have... It's since my first watch, and it's funny, it should have made my list. It's 100% fits on my list Mm -hmm. as a movie that really tries to pass off this this chemistry between its two leads where there is zero. And this movie is considered a classic by so many. It's effective for me as a... As a horror film, I mean, I, Mia Farrow is is harrowing. The transformation that she goes over, what, sure. the sort of psychological torment that she's put through, I think works for, for me as sort of a psycho horror picture. Sure. But man, John Cassavetes, oh. dude sold his wife out to a satanic cult so she could give birth to the devil also, he could find a little more success as a shitty actor. Exactly. As what a the sh- fuck? It's adapted from the Ira Levin novel and directed by wanted sex criminal Roman Polanski. So really the entire affair is a problem. But I think when you use your wife as Satan's incubator, your marriage deserves to be on a bottom five romance list. I think Rosemary's Baby is a hard watch. Mm. And I think probably even more so these days when we're having bigger conversations about the way we treat women in this society. So... There's all of that. Funny that you mentioned Ira Levin. You know what else he wrote? Sliver. That can't be true. It's totally that can't true. Be tr- no, it isn't. I feel like I'm getting punked right now. No, I'm Is 100% serious. It's 100% serious. Yeah, Ira this Levin. It's like one of those things where I'm going to agree and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you're like, Ira Levin didn't write Sliver. What were you thinking? Sliver. This is amazing. By U.S. author Ira Levin is a novel about mysterious people in a privately owned high-rise apartment building in New York City. I Wow. Unbelievable. Take that, Jeopardy. Man, my day will come, right? <laughs> I think that it's very interesting how our two lists kind of work and they go in and out of each other the way they do without us discussing a single word. 
it may be a frightening insight into how we view romance. I hope our wives don't listen to this. I think. I, I think maybe they should. Again, we're know. saying these are the bottom five romances, we're not top. So. But it forces us to define what romance is to us. And my wife is going to be like, "Oh, okay, so just don't inject me with the devil, and you're good." For, for my number two, I chose another acclaimed filmmaker with an interesting reputation that's coming out more in this at this time where we're talking about how women are treated. Specifically, this director has recently come under fire for his treatment of Shelley Duvall when he directed The Shining. And that's, okay. I'm talking about Stanley Kubrick, and I'm talking about his 1999 film, Eyes Wide Shut, hmm. which is famously his last film. This movie is a very difficult movie to watch. I think possibly by design, I'm not sure. He definitely, in a premeditated way, cast Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who were then married, as a married couple experiencing marital problems because the woman is starting to look outside the marriage for sexual gratification. She starts fantasizing and whatever else. The biggest problem for me with Eyes Wide Shut isn't that it feels pointless in its egregious two-hour, 39-minute runtime, which is two minutes less <laughs> than out of, out of Africa. Africa. <laughs> uh-huh. And by the way, Karen Blixton does not leave Africa until two hours and 38 minutes. The movie doesn't live its title until the final two minutes. That's true. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't think that anybody could actually live this title. <laughs> Unless it was in this metaphorical way, which is really the whole point of the movie. I think what Kubrick was trying to do with this movie is speak about sex in some way that felt fresh or interesting or new and use Cruz against type, make him vulnerable, don't make him the alpha male, but instead put him in this jealousy spiral and this descent that he ends up in within the film that ends up with a weird masked orgy that is just a very strange sequence that is neither erotic nor really interesting. It looks like some sort of Illuminati, <laughs> like, orientation ritual. It None of it, it... It's very dreamlike. It's very, very staged. Everything... All of the acting is extremely stilted, or the vast majority of it, although... Nicole Kidman, I have to say, who I have quibbles with, usually. She's a very uneven actress. I find sometimes just outstanding. Other times, I cannot watch her. Here, she was very, very good. But Cruz was so out of his element that it seems like it was an intentional decision by Kubrick. And he's involving the audience's expectations as part of his narrative, which I think is something that Kubrick did... As a filmmaker, he sort of wanted to make audiences participate in the film narrative themselves, their expectations becoming part of the overall experience of the film, which is just kind of a lot of heady bullshit for me. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I do not want, I'm not here for an experiment. I'm here for cinema. I can acknowledge that that's a really interesting approach and it's not something that everybody does. You know, something like Clockwork Orange, I guess, has merit, but... That's a film where he wants to sort of make you complicit in the crimes of Alex and his droogs. That's the same kind of thing, trying to make you participate as an audience member. You're right. You're right. Yes, that's exactly right. So what he does with this movie really doesn't work in part because 
unlike something like Clockwork Orange or unlike something with The Shining, he doesn't really have a co-conspirator that understands his point of view. And, and, and as much as one would think a married couple could have chemistry, Cruz and Kidman don't. They're, and now, granted, right, the, the whole idea here is that they're kind of in a friction but there are scenes where there's supposed to be some connection, some underlying romance there between them. And it's just very, very, very stilted, very uneasy, uncomfortable and weird. And it's not something that I liked watching. It pulled me right out of whatever was happening. And if that was the intention, great. But it, it's memorable as something that for me really didn't work. So that's why I have it at my number two. I considered this movie. It was almost too much for me to wrap my head around and really what my thoughts were. I think you did a great job pulling out exactly what's wrong with the film. I, it was almost too twisty and uncomfortable for me to really articulate what made me feel that way. Sure. But it's an absolutely solid pick. My number one, I knew immediately when you told me the topic, I knew right away. This is my number one for this topic. No question about it. I'm going with Mickey and Mallory from natural born killers. This is a film that I'm not sure I can adequately explain how much I dislike. Mickey and Mallory are like Kit and Holly from Badlands, but on quaaludes and with an almost intolerable overbearing soundtrack. Man, I cannot stand these characters. Too loud, too forced, way too on the nose. Everything about Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis, who I struggle to find anything I like her in. Juliette Lewis is just an actress that doesn't work for me in just about anything, aside from maybe uh, Christmas, Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation. Eyeballs okay, freeze. good. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> She'll look at it tomorrow, Clark. Her eyeballs are frozen. <laughs> Everything about this movie is just way too much. It's like a satire of a satire. Yeah. There's nothing about these people, their relationships, their history, their trauma, anything that I can even sort of find to like them, never mind invest in their romance. It's another romance gone on a killing spree movie, but with all the subtlety of a trash can full of firecrackers. Had I not already seen and come to very inflexible conclusions about Natural Born Killers, It'd be the perfect movie to have made me watch for an episode. That's how much I dislike this film. <laughs> I hate this film. I think Oliver Stone has made 50% of a good movie one time in JFK. And the romance between Mickey and Mallory in Natural Born Killers is a stand-in for social commentary. Yeah. But it isn't social commentary. I despise this goddamn movie. I think what's fascinating about that movie is that it came out the same year as John Waters' Serial Mom, which did maybe a quarter of the business that Natural Born Killers did and wasn't nearly the sensation, but was tackling the exact same topic, which was this sort of sensationalized violence and glamorization of violence on TV. But what Serial Mom did so well was make it funny, make it interesting, make it funny and laughable while making its point. And what Natural Born killers did was glorify all of the things it was wagging its finger at absolutely so it was indulging completely which is fine if you're not trying to make a point about what violence is doing to society and how it's desensitizing us etc it is a 
completely confused message. Because I think this movie, you're only getting pieces of ideas. Serial Mom is such a better film. Also, another movie I think you could talk about that's a lot heavier, but a similar thing is Michael Hanukkah's Funny Games, a movie that, again satire of the glorification of violence. Even that kind of ties into the thing we were talking about with Kubrick about sort of making you a participant yes. of a voyeur in what you're seeing on film. Natural Born Killers is like a satire of that satire. Yeah. And it wants us so badly to fall for Mickey and Mallory and yeah. sort of the the romance of this gonzo thing they're doing. And they want them to be sort of a Bonnie and Clyde for the 90s. Mm-hmm. And it does not work. They're going through this madhouse violence in parallel lanes, but none of them really requires the other for it to happen. If Mallory was gone, Mickey would still be a violent monster. If Mickey was gone, Mallory would still be a fucked up girl who was going to hurt people. They didn't need one another to exist as a couple. And so nothing about that works. It's just grating. And I cannot tell you how much I I loathe this film. Well, we're, we're one in the same on that one. My number one has been mentioned already in some respects. Uh, you talked about a particular director who has a uh, career now that's pretty much blemished probably permanently. And my choice that really represents my discomfort with him as a filmmaker is 1979's Manhattan. I'm talking about Woody Allen. And I know that we make light in these bottom fives. And in this case, I mean, it is a comedy and it is still a movie that I can watch and I can get some enjoyment out of. This isn't a post Me Too reappraisal of the movie for me. This is something that I've always felt when I watch this movie. The scenes between Allen's character and Mariel Hemingway's 17-year-old model character really touch upon that icky feeling that you got with Adam Sandler putting all these gorgeous women opposite him. It really felt like wish fulfillment on camera. These scenes where Alan's just laying down, his character Isaac is with Tracy in bed post-coitus, and they're just lying there and talking about how great it was or whatever, really grossed me out when I first saw this movie 25 years ago or whatever it was. Absolutely. It never felt right. And in fact, there are other Alan movies where I felt this way. Now, I want to back up a little bit. I was an enormous Alan fan growing up. Movies like Bananas, Sleeper, Love and Death, you know, his 70s output and early 80s output were some of my favorite movies of all time. I stopped watching Alan movies maybe about 20 years ago, I didn't make a conscious effort to not separate the artist from his art. I think it's a subconscious thing for me, and I just couldn't get into his work the way I used to. But prior to that separation, prior to when I stopped watching him, movies like Deconstructing Harry, where he was dating a much younger woman, Elizabeth Shue, or Mira Servino, who won the Oscar for Mighty Aphrodite, in that movie too, he has a romantic relationship with a much younger woman. It's just this repeated thing. And it didn't, it didn't really occur to me until I made this list. I do want to talk about things that I've seen in his film throughout my fandom and my watching his stuff that always struck me as unsettling. Mm-hmm. Manhattan is a gloriously beautiful movie to watch. The Gordon Willis cinematography, the shots are truly 
spectacular of New York. The use of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. It truly is a cinematic masterpiece in many respects. But I don't think you can really enjoy the movie fully when you know that the guy at the center of the movie, not the filmmaker, but the guy that he's playing, this character, Isaac, 42 years old, twice divorced, dating a 17-year-old model, and then at the end of the movie, after spending the, the rest of the film talking down to her, calling her kid, saying she doesn't know how to life, that she's not grown up enough, saying all this stuff to her, but yet he's having sex with her. And this was perfectly acceptable back in, what's, uh, 79, right? 80. <laughs> they didn't bat an eyelash at this? So... He spends the whole movie saying this, but then at the end of the movie discovers that he really is in love with her, but he's in love with her because she's uncorrupted, because she's about to go overseas, and he wants to stop her from going, and, and her last line is something like, not everything is corruptible, or something along those lines. And, it, and so you take a glorious film like Manhattan, but at the core you've got something this ugly and gross, that is a truly awful romance that brings down a movie and that is why it earns number one on my list. Yeah. I think it's, it's a perfect one. I almost included it on mine. I struggled with, again, kind of, like I said at the top, I struggled with defining it as a romance for me I know, in the I same way it. with Lolita because, but it is treated as one man in, in Lolita. It, it isn't necessarily treated as one in Lolita. It's a, it's an illness. It's treated Absolutely. as an illness of that yep. character. This was one of those like consenting adults and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm glad that you had the guts to dig into this topic. I was just afraid <laughs> that I would botch it, honestly. But I think you did a great job laying out what's wrong with the movie. Like I said, when I was talking about Adam Sandler and those schlubby actors casting themselves opposite these gorgeous leading ladies, I mentioned Woody Allen is basically inventing it. And you're yeah. right. He does it time and again. And, like you, I now struggle with the fact that I love the film Annie Hall and I think it's an amazing movie, but I can't in good conscience go back and enjoy it the way that I did because Woody Allen, through his films, told us who he is. Mm. And as the saying goes, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. It's that time of our show now, Mike, where we're going to sit back and think about movies that we do like. What do you got for me? I have a movie that makes me feel good. It's a movie that makes me feel happy. It's a movie that <laughs> makes me tap my toes. It's a movie set in Dublin during the 1980s. This is a film from 2016 directed by John Carney. Yes. I'm talking about Sing Street. Sing Street. I love this movie. John Carney wrote and directed, of, of course, he's the same guy who did Once, mm -hmm. another film that is, I think, really beautiful and hinges on a lot of really great music. It's about this kid growing up in Dublin who meets a girl, wants to woo her, and he starts a band. It's the only thing he can think of to do. And we see these kids in this very blue collar part of Dublin go through all these kind of different phases of music of the 80s. He has his... Duran Duran phase. He has his... The Cure. The Cure, absolutely. <laughs> Going through all of these things. 
this is a movie that just makes me feel good. It's funny. It understands where its humor is coming from. It gives us just a funny group of kids that are making these great music videos that are always good for a laugh. They're so earnest. They're bad, but they're also really good at the same time because while these kids are not filmmakers, they're not professional musicians, and yeah, you have to buy in a little bit that, like, how did these kids get this good at writing songs and playing these instruments? That doesn't really make a ton of sense, but it doesn't matter because the original songs in Sing Street are so great. It's a fantastic movie. It's a great pick for feeling better about terrible romances. It's a cinematic breath mint. That's what it is. Absolutely. And it is It is a romance. I didn't even think about it, it when I made it my pick, but it is. It a, is. it's a romantic film. You know, I think about it, it's not as dour as The Commitments, but if you took The Commitments and Be Kind Rewind and you slammed them together <laughs> and you added some sprinkle of happy on there, uh, it, there's yeah. such a vitality to Sing Street. It, it's, it's a really, really great staff pick. And I, I hope that you get some people to watch it and then and then they write in and talk about it because i i think more people need to see that movie i think we would be a, a much happier populace if we all watched sing street together for me i also picked a movie that has singing at its center and i somehow managed to tie in every film jitsu episode that we've made up till now it is a reboot it's possibly sort of about an asshole and it's got two characters with so much chemistry that even today, some three years later, uh, clickbait websites are still ruminating over whether there's something more than just acting that happened between the leads. Oh. It is 2018's A Star is Born, directed by Bradley Cooper, directed, starring, produced, and written by Bradley Cooper. There is no reason whatsoever that this movie should have been good. It should have been an absolute train wreck. I thought for sure it was a cinematic misfire. Just remaking Star is Born Again seemed ridiculous. But he again, had... Again, again, again. He had an ace in the hole. He had Lady Gaga. And oh my God, can that woman act? Can that woman sing? Can that woman bring vulnerability? And such feeling in her eyes when she's acting, their chemistry is so real, so powerful. I went into this a complete naysayer. I despised the 76 version with Christofferson and Streisand. Sure. That is something that if you threw at me, I would probably scream and, and cry. <laughs> um, this movie has been made no less than four other times. Of course, the original in, what, 37, and then 51 is a TV production, 54 uh, with Judy Garland, and then, of course, in 76 with Streisand, right? And now you get Lady Gaga, which should just be, it sounds ridiculous. She's even credited as Lady Gaga. Phenomenal. Earnest. You get some really phenomenal work out of Sam Elliott in a supporting role. You get a good supporting turn from Andrew Dice Clay. No lie. And by the end of the thing, I have to say it got pretty dusty around here. <laughs> I have to say I cared enough about the characters. I cared enough about where they were going and how things were, were evolving between them that I really felt something by the end of the film. I want to watch the film. I've been waiting for maybe the right endorsement because... 
I see all of what you're talking about. I've heard so much of that in the conversation and I've been kind of waiting for a firsthand account from somebody that I trust to say, no, 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 go ahead and do it. I, you know, of course there was all the talk about their performance at the Oscars and Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, are they, aren't they? If that was, if that was acting. Yeah. One of the really challenging things about talking about the movie is you're feeling like you're in an echo chamber that everything that everyone else has Mm. said is in fact true. It doesn't seem possible that it could be true, but it is. Jason, this brings us to the part of the show where I get to reveal what film you're going to be watching for our next episode. I've been thinking a little bit about what our feed looks like here just a few episodes in. What kind of films does a film jitsu audience maybe expect that we're going to cover? And I don't know that Cats and Out of Africa would have been anybody's guess for the first couple. And so I'm thinking, like, what does the feed look like? Episode one, episode two, what's the next one going to be? And so I wanted to do something that is definitely a lot less serious than what we've been talking about here today. Definitely a whole lot leaner than Out of Africa and kind of makes sense as a good old fashioned film jitsu movie. And so for our next episode, you're going to be watching a real Jean-Claude Van Damme classic. I want you to sit down with Time Cop. Oh. I thought it was going to be double impact. <laughs> no, sir. Not we can't handle. We're not ready for two Van Dams. <laughs> not yet. That's the Van damage we can't handle. We're going to ease our way in with a real good Time if, Cop. If I'm not mistaken, didn't didn't Sam Raimi produce Time Cop? Or There's a least... lot of time copping. I, the, you look. Time <laughs> is the thing that needs to be copped. You can't just let time run around doing what it wants. You need cops for that. And so. <laughs> In the spirit of that, I thought, what's the bottom five going to be? And my first thought was bottom five cops, and maybe that day will come, but it's not going to be for this next one. And so along with Jean-Claude Van Damme's Time Cop, we are going to do our bottom five travels in time. Okay, so bottom five problems that occur when one time travels. Yes, our bottom Ah. five time travels. Not necessarily our bottom five films about time travel but actually those experiences the things that happen the conundrums the catastrophes the bad shit that comes up when one travels through time so flashbacks don't count i would say not (laughs) they has to have a cause and effect a cause and effect relationship with time actually traveling through time got it sure all right sure that's that's a heady concept we'll definitely have to think about that one (laughs) I feel like this is one of those things where you and I are going to have very vastly different approaches and I'm looking forward to finding out what that is. <laughs> I think of I think of Malcolm McDowell in Star Trek Generations where he says, "They say that time is the fire in which we burn." <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. That's the now, first now, thing. 
Star Trek. That's the one with the singlets, right? They wear the shirts. That's yeah, the, yeah. That's that's, the, that's the one with the yeah, no belts, no belts in the future. <laughs> oh no. Okay. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, I think a sillier episode. Certainly, uh, I'm giving you a movie that I expect is probably 35 <laughs> minutes long. If I had to venture a guess, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward next week when we're going to cover Time Cop. But until then, I'm Jay. And I'm Mike. We'll see you next time. I think there's a B in here. And that is bad for me because I'm allergic. So oh, man, this is going to be the last episode of Film Jitsu ever. <laughs> We're going to die here. Oh, no. Oh, How do God. I do a virtual EpiPen? This is going to be the worst outtake of any podcast of all time. <laughs> oh. Episode three, Jason dies. Although that's nice because it gives us Jason the opportunity for hell. Jason goes to hell. Right. <laughs> there it is. Next episode, it'll just be me by myself eulogizing you. <laughs> <laughs>